really got to try on that left hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty head over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit to make this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show for news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. My name is David Lawrence, your host for the show. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I, that's easily accomplished. I'm easy to find on all your socials, and you can always just drop me an email at the scrum of the earth at gmail.com. Well, there was, of course, a ton of action this weekend, as always, so why don't we get this show started? Okay, starting with our current updates, as I record this right now, it's a holiday here in the States, a holiday honoring the legacy of the great Martin Luther King Jr. I am quite obviously no expert, but I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about him a little bit, at least. Um, I just didn't want this day to go by without at least including this. I mean, it's just kind of landed right in my lap. So <laughs> to do you all a favor, I went and looked some things up so that you wouldn't be subject to my super inexpert and super white thoughts on it. Uh, an organization called the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition turned out to be a good resource for this. I've linked to their website in the show notes, as always, of course. Uh, so from their site, I found the following quote, in order to properly value Martin Luther King's legacy and, his, and to prevent his ideas from being misrepresented now more than ever since the civil rights movement began, it's essential to educate ourselves about how exactly Dr. King envisioned the U.S. becoming a unified, peaceful, anti-racist nation. Here's what people of all political leanings <clears throat> need to know about Dr. King and what it means to be a political moderate versus an extremist for love, or in other terms, non-racist versus anti-racist. Since before the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s to the present day, white moderates on both sides of the political aisle have prided themselves on being decent, reasonable people who reject racism and racial oppression. But as King explains in his famous letter from Birmingham jail, racism is so deeply rooted in our systems that anyone who isn't actively opposing racism through deliberate action is allowing it to persist and endure. About halfway through the letter, uh, King states that he has been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. In fact, he suggests that this mainstream, uh, mainstream group, not the Ku Klux Klan, is the greatest obstacle to achieving equality for black Americans. King laments that even as white moderates claim to support justice for people of color, they conversely impede it, in part by remaining passive and in part by criticizing the methods and timing of civil rights work. But as King points out, those who frown on disruptive protests and boycotts are using backwards logic, since none of these things would be necessary if people of color had not first been abused and oppressed for centuries, or if racial injustices had already been corrected. He likens this logic to complaining that a robbery victim precipitated the crime of theft. He also asserts that no one is entitled to dictate the timetable on which any group of people should succeed in gaining basic constitutional rights, uh, I would say human rights, um, yet this is exactly what people who have the luxury of racial privilege often feel is reasonable. They prefer, as King puts it, quote, a negative peace with the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, unquote. If you haven't read Dr. Letters, uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail, oh, you... I mean, you have to. I've also linked the, the letter in its entirety in the show notes. I simply cannot recommend it highly enough. Happy MLK Day, everyone. He's stupid! He's stupid! People have to know! 
No, Isa, once again, it's not good news this week, especially in Nottingham. I, I came across an article that was effectively an appeal for support, which read, quote, English Championship Club Nottingham have launched a fundraiser after a severe flooding damaged their Lady Bay facilities and resulted in the postponement of their uh, Tier 2 clash at home to London Scottish last weekend. The club, which is located near the River Trent, are next set to host the British Army in a January 26th friendly and head of that game. They're appealing for funds to repair their facilities as their insurance won't cover the full extent of the costs involved. A statement read, the total flooding of Lady Bay has meant we have damage to our pitches, marquee, and training facilities. We urgently need financial help to enable us to reinstate our facilities and provide our normal range of championship rugby matches, community training facilities, and private events. Due to being on a floodplain, the insurance available to the club will not cover the costs incurred of the flooding, hence why we are asking for the extra financial help. We're calling on the local rugby community to support us through these unprecedented times for the club. Your club needs you, unquote. Nottingham have so far raised 25%, £13,000 of the £50,000 they're seeking by the Just Giving website, with several Gallagher Premiership clubs helping to spread the message on social media, along with many of Nottingham's championship colleagues. Obviously, listeners, if you're in a position to do anything at all, it would be great if you could, you know, just pitch in even a little bit. Any support I get this month, I will just turn around and just give it to them. So thanks in advance for whatever you can manage, and best of luck over in Nottingham. Okay, moving on to the thoughts of the week. And for my thoughts this week, I'm actually thinking about the long road that Adam Hastings has had to get himself fully fit and playing consistent rugby. Quoting here from the BBC, quote, Adam Hastings is thrilled to be back playing rugby following a hellish 18-month riddled with injuries. The 27-year-old Scotland fly half sustained shoulder, ankle, and knee injuries during that period and required four operations. He is now fit again and regularly playing for Gloucester. Quote, the past season and a half has been fairly hellish for me in terms of just getting through games, uh, Hastings told the BBC Scotland Rugby Podcast. I strung a bit together at the start of last year, before the autumn, and then I just went on this run of injury after injury. I just couldn't quite believe it was happening, to be honest. You hear about boys having these injury troubles, and you always think, that'll never be me. But then I'm there with my fourth operation of the year, kind of staring down the barrel. Hastings' injury woes started in his last appearance for Scotland against Fiji in November 2022 when a crunching hit ended his involvement. That set off a chain of injury problems that have blighted his career since to the extent that Hastings explored some unconventional methods as he sought to shake his uh, injury jinx. Quote, my sister bought me a voucher to see a shaman in Barcelona, a witch doctor. So I'll need to use that in the summer, maybe, he said. I, I just said to her, after maybe my fourth injury, I must be cursed. What the hell's going on? She went to see a witch jo a doctor who did these cards for me and things like that, even though I wasn't there. Apparently, she really wants to see me, this witch doctor. So I might pay her a visit in the summertime. I was pretty dark for a while, at least a couple of weeks. And then I got back on the horse again. I just let myself have it for a little bit. Just let myself feel down. I kind of know the rehab process well now and what you have to do taking the small wins. I'm so happy to be back out there playing. It's been so enjoyable. It would be nicer if I, if we were winning, but I'm just happy to be back out there with the boys and contributing, unquote. I've always liked Hastings as a player, so it's nice to see him back out there and looking very much his old self. Even so, I 100% agree that he should definitely go to the witch doctor. I mean, you can't be too safe, you know? Okay, that brings us, of course, to our reviews, and I'm sure 
you are well aware the European competitions came back this weekend. So on Friday, the Heineken Cup kicked off with the Northampton Saints taking on Bayonne. Uh, Saints came out looking fully fired up. Tommy Freeman ripped through for the first try of the encounter after a mere 65 seconds in what's becoming something of a tradition. By the way, Austin Healy on comms was breaking down plays that only he could actually see. It's really starting to feel like the producers are just outright trolling him at this point. So after what the comms called an absolute shambles of a line out for the visitors that led to another easy try. The only thing I actually had written down in my notes was Bayon look bad. After 40 minutes, Saints were scoring more than a point a minute. It honestly looked like that might continue through the second half. Bayon were utterly gruesome. So at the break, I kind of realized I was bored enough to just fast forward a little bit. And sure enough, it was 54-0 after 54 minutes. But by the the three-quarter mark, uh, they had finally come off the pace. They they didn't make the 80, but they made mincemeat out of a Bayon cupcake, 61-14, to an absolute shellacking. On Saturday, we started with Lyon hosting my Connacht. Both lineups were a little weird. Definitely not full strength on either side. It was a surprisingly small crowd on hand as well. It was like the least popular place to be in European rugby. Neither the players nor the fans seemed to want to be there. Uh, that was until, of course, Sean Jansen put on an absolute show, breaking through for an unbelievable try, a number eight simply outpacing everyone around him. It was just incredible. You've got to check out the highlights if you've missed it. But it was fireworks in return from Chepche as he flashed through the eye of a needle to put Leon ahead 14 to 5. Leon looked like they might run away with it at one point, but Connacht, they snuck back with a converted try with just over 10 minutes to play. Sadly, a turnover led to a Leon drive that saw the elusive Thakir Abrahams get through to put it out of reach for the visitors. Leon, they showed some flashes, I thought, but they, they didn't look particularly great. But even so, they had more than enough to take care of the boys from Galway, 34-20 to 20 altogether. Exeter versus Glasgow Warriors was our next offering, and at the tops, the comms said, quote, Fascinatingly, the Warriors have given a professional debut to Gregor Hiddleston at Hooker, unquote. And then on top of that, when I saw Donkey Weir listed at number 10, I wrote, uh-oh, in my notebook. Of course, I mean, what's wrong with me, folks? I was foolish enough to hope that they wouldn't do their idiotic tomahawk chant thingy. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why I even imagined that they would have dropped that by now. It didn't take that long for them to... Uh, disabuse me of that particular dream so that's when i shut off the game 19 to 17 was the score puke uh bristol bears they took on the bulls it was close most of the way bulls up just three at the break and that's the way it would stay until just before the final quarter when the visitors started to pull away the comms informed us it was the bulls biggest win in their short champions cup history scoring 21 points in just over 20 minutes 17 to 31 was your final score too long they were at home to face a wounded Munster team, though you know a few players were back, including the dreaded Peter O'Mahony. Players like Thomas Ahern as well. He's been playing out of his skull. So, you know, maybe Munster would surprise us again. They've certainly gotten very good at it. Uh, the Pilu Pilu was rousing, as always. But I just have to wonder, as a side note, the guy who leads it, does he need something like more than like a hoodie, you know? I mean, but but what would that thing be? A tuxedo, like a rooster costume, maybe change it from week to week. Anywho, it was a great crowd, just as you'd expect. Uh, the home team really came out with attitude. I, I felt sure they were targeting this match. But even with their injury woes, Munster, they're formidable. Simon Zebo looked like he was on a mission. 
if I have it right, he hasn't played for Ireland since 2017, but he's making a strong case for Six Nations next month in my book. Uh, Duncan Paya, uh, Awa, sorry about that, was the beneficiary of some amazing work on attack for the hosts. And into the second half of the first half, it was 10-0, but Simon Zebo, his name came up again on his 50th appearance in the Champions Cup, got a beauty to give his team a 13-17 lead as they went to the lockers. This one, man, it got really, really good. And you have to mention, you have to mention the massive turnout of Munster fans in the audience. They continue to travel exceptionally well as their team went up 18 to 29 at the start of the final quarter of play. The camera showed Dan, Dan Bigger berating, I mean, uh, leading and instructing his team. You know, when Bigger first got signed, I remember an article about how he was already taking French lessons and really wanted to get ahead of, with the language. So it made me wonder, is there an app specifically geared towards belligerent French? Anyway, Munster, they managed to completely take control, uh, take the crowd out of it. In the final 10 minutes, it was the familiar, if somewhat unimaginative, Munster, Munster, refrain from the stands, dominating the broadcast. Just amazing. They very effectively went into slow it down mode. The hosts never really had the chance to catch up. A potentially big opportunity squandered for them. And another, how did that happen? Performance from Munster, winning away 18-29. to And don't sleep on this team. Quote, one of the finest victories, unquote, to the comms right at the end. Leinster were up next hosting Stade Francais. And this is one of the reasons, I mean, just one of the reasons it's so tough to be a rugby fan in the United States. We just don't have mainstream coverage. Like, there's no cable channel I can flip flip on to hear, you know, previews and whatnot. Even in terms like the, the side that Stad had selected so that the comms said at the top, the squad selection had all but ensured that they wouldn't be going anywhere in this competition. And, and side note upon a side note, I often wonder what the families of these players think when they say stuff like that on worldwide broadcast. Anyway, Sagon, he did manage a solitary try right at the end to actually get some points on the board for the drink boxes, but it was an unfunny laugher in Dublin as Leinster won handily 43-7. to Stormers, they were home for sale. In the opening, they said this would be the last time they get to play at home until late March, which could be in trouble for this team. The game itself was a bit of an odd one. It felt like Stormers were in full control until you looked at the scoreboard. After looking dead and buried, Sale fought their way back in and found themselves down just seven as they were driving in the final minutes. A ton of chippiness in this one as well. Like I hadn't realized how annoying Gus War is until today. He and LeBoc looked like they were right on the verge of throwing down at any moment. Sharks, however, they seemed content with a losing bonus point. And at the double whistle, the final tally was 31-27 to 27 in favor of the Stormers. After that, Cardiff, they faced Harlequins. The first half was as close as, as could be. And side note, uh, I mean, we, we can't escape the Marcus thing, uh, Marcus Smith thing, okay? Like, there's all these people who say, oh, he's the Messiah for English rugby. There are people who say, he's very good, but he doesn't actually fit what England are trying to do. And then there's an equal number of people who say he's just not very good. I think Marcus Smith is exceptional. I think any team would be psyched to have him. I think the guy has endured stupid levels of criticism. I think he can become something special for England if they don't drive him away to France first. Tiny mini rant over. In any event, it was Smith himself putting the icing on 40 unanswered points for a 15-54 to 54 blowout win. Quinn's really made them look bad. And honestly, it actually could have been much worse.
Ulster were home to face off against a potentially mighty Toulouse team, and I, for one, was happy to see Mike Lowry getting the start. That guy is like the Ulster version of Cheslin Colbe, and I just have this feeling that listeners will take that in a multitude of different ways. Um, I'd wondered if Toulouse would go light on the squad, but uh, yeah, no, no, it was it was full noise. Ulster supporters were making the environment as hostile as possible. The home team came out with a lot of energy, really good defense as things got into gear as well. The crowd was absolutely there for it. This, of course, was the 14th meeting between these two clubs, each team winning six with one draw. And this time, our first try was from Matisse Labelle, who had thereby scored in all three rounds thus far to lose. They're just so dangerous. Having scored tries exactly half the time, they get into the opposition 22 in Europe this year. One of the cool stats I heard was that Movaka nailed his 24th consecutive lineout throw. And then it was Movaka himself uh, pounding in a try, making it 3-15, to but the complexion of the game would change soon after that to lose. I mean, they just exploded. They showed us their true colors. Ulster, uh, Ulster normally would probably feel pretty good to score 24 points, but it's not often a team that gets two dozen also gets doubled up at the same time. By the end, that was the case. A bad beat for Ulster. It was a bit of a schooling 24 to 48 by the final bell. Bath versus Racing 92, they kicked off our Sunday offerings. The hosts were decked out in their paint-the-town-red kit, according to the comms. Finn, <clears throat> Finn Russell looked like he was in kind of a serious mood, which I have to say usually doesn't bode well for his team. Uh, Racing's defense was incredible through the first half and then some, but somehow we were locked at 22 with a quarter hour to go. Alfie Barbary, after getting a light sentence earlier in the game, got sighted again. His second yellow saw him off for the rest of the way, leaving Bath with a precarious four-point lead with five minutes remaining. Quick side note here. Anyone else agree that David Flatman's commentary has super leveled up this year? <clears throat> like, I've, I've always liked the guy anyway, but this year, I don't know. He's just kind of found his mojo, I guess. As always, let me know what you think. Either way, very exciting ending in this one. Very much looked like Rassing were going to steal it at the death, but a surprising obstruction call saw bath hold on only just it was 29 to 25 as the crowd roared their approval huge win at the wreck la rochelle versus leicester got your votes for the game of the week in the champions cup it was super intense right from the did i just say super for like the ninth time just this one episode anyway um both teams of course were looking to lay down a marker on the european stage points were at a premium with the hosts the only point scorers through a half hour and right as the comms told us the one thing lester can't do right now is let will skelton through that was when will skelton got through for an inevitable try giving his team some breathing room as we went towards the break Gotta say, I like the black kit the Tigers showed up in. It was very, I guess, no nonsense. But the Cobbs told us if they couldn't find an answer before halftime, the mountain might be too high to scale. Right on cue, George Martin scored one of the visitors, but it was La Rochelle striking back with the clock past 42 minutes. What a game. Quote, you can choose any way you want to describe Will Skelton's performance tonight, said the comms, but I think it's fair to say the best word might be monstrous, unquote. I mean, yeah. It was all positive for the home team until they had two injuries right at the same time around the three-quarter hour mark. This whole weekend felt riddled with injuries. Is everyone like extra brittle because it's so cold? Anyway, Skelton, almost as soon as I had made that note, got sent to the bin for too many infringements. But the comms, they echoed my own thoughts that it would just be sort of a nice breather before he could come back for the final shove. However, soon after that, Jonathan Dante also got shown yellow for the, for the infraction of getting his head bounced off the shoulder of Andre Pollard. Down to 13, could La Rochelle lose the plot here? 
by the way, side note, the camera crew absolutely knew what was up, giving us beautiful shot after beautiful shot of the dramatic sunset clouds. I mean, thank you. I always appreciate that extra. Just so nice. So the whole evening felt kind of sophisticated as Laura Shell, who haven't looked great this year, finally found some of last year's spark. They would win handily by the end, a late try preventing them from setting a record, however, in their Champions Cup history. 45 to 12 was your big total. Finally, though, the match I was most looking forward to, it was my beautiful Border Beagles facing the, the dark side of the Saracens. It took only moments to see Owen Farrell wearing his, oh, come on, face. You know, not trying to be mean or anything, just pointing out that he often looks like someone just farted in church. Uh, Bordeaux, they had won seven in a row and nine in a row at home. They are so much fun to watch. Early on, it was Louis Bielbaillet uh, slashing his way through for the first try of the night. The comms shouted, who can stop this young man? Not Saracens, not today. And it was a hard point to argue. The guy's got seven caps and five tries in the World Cup, and he's only 20 years old. Holy cow. Uh, continuing the over-the-top commentary as Bordeaux got their third try in 20 minutes, they said, and this time the Ferraris out wide aren't needed because the dump truck trundles right over the top of Saracens. And I really had to wonder what Maxine Lamont would have thought of that particular description. Uh, anyway, the bonus point was in the bag. Five minutes before halftime, Saracens seemed to wilt under the pressure. It was honestly a surprising performance by them. Fittingly, it was Biel Barret getting another try with the clock past 80 minutes. It was a massive, massive win for my top 14 side. 55 to 15, the comms said that Owen Farrell looked like he'd seen a ghost. Yowza. Okay, switching gears a little bit, going over to the Milwaukee's Best Light Cup, we had two Friday fixtures, starting with the abysmal Newcastle Falcons facing Benetton. It looked like an interesting turn of fortunes where Benetton were the ones rotating their squad rather than the other way around. I mean, how things have changed. Newcastle, they showed up in their bright pink and white kit, which I really kind of like. There's something very compelling about it. Andy Goode, of course, who was on comms, felt compelled to say he was glad he never had to wear pink when he was with the Falcons. And yes, Andy, we get it already. In any event, it was a really positive start for winless Newcastle, getting 10 points on the board, thanks in part to a very, very early yellow to Benetton. After that, however, it was a very different story. Newcastle missing tackles, making handling errors, basically being the same team we've seen without a win over the last 40 weeks. Benetton, they poured it on with Umanga getting a microcosmic try with the clock past 80 to nab a convincing win on the road. By the end, it really wasn't close. Perhaps it never really was. It was 18 to 57. Whew. That one, of course, was followed by Ospreys hosting Perpignan. I like this version of the Ospreys kit, but I do wish the dark part was black rather than gray. But shocker coming, believe it or not, I'm not actually involved in the fashion industry. Huh, fun fact. So the crowd on hand was not not big. So <laughs> it was that thing where you can clearly hear individuals screaming things like, that's offside. He's offside. Come on, ref. It actually took me a bit, but I realized the other reason you could make out so much of what the crowd, sort of like individuals in the crowd were saying, is because there was no comms in the broadcast. I recall that the Challenge Cup had told us ahead of the tournament that there would be several games without commentary, but after the chat fest for the Newcastle-Benetton game, it just felt jarring. There, <laughs> there was a really funny moment when someone in the crowd had a drum and, and did the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And nothing happened, and then and then there's a long pause and you hear one kid go, Ospreys. 
<laughs> so not a lot to report uh, through the first half. Both teams unable to do much of anything, but Ospreys finally bagged three points close to halftime, then got a try of an errant pass that made it 8-0 headed to the lockers. By the end, a clearly underprepared Perpignan side were overwhelmed by an underwhelming side. As the ball trickled comically out of bounds, it was a nice little win in Swansea Ospreys pleasing their sparse home crowd to the tune of 25 to three. Nice one. Then on Saturday, it was sharks versus Oyona. The comms described the Oyona selection as a mix and match squad while sharks, they looked pretty close to full bore. It was interesting. It's of course been freezing and or snowing where I am, but it's high summer in Durban. So the comms made a point of mentioning what they described as the great difficulty for the players as they go from a nice chilly air conditioned dressing room to out on the field in the blistering January heat, which I don't know, it brought me back to all the times I've gone to the movies in Texas. Uh, anyway, fairly small crowd on hand. I, I too had to struggle to stay interested in this one. Not even sure why, like sharks, they're an all-star team, but I just, just wasn't feeling it for whatever reason. Mel Pimpy's tried to gave his team a 19 to nil lead headed back into the climate control the second 40 would prove no more lucrative for the visitors. Eventually, it was a sweaty win for the home team, 38-7 to when all was said and done. Clermont versus Scarlets was up next. Clermont, they came out in that kit that looks like it's camouflage, but for like, I don't know, a storm cloud or something. It was all French commentary in this one, but Scarlets' struggles transcend language. So I think I pretty much got the gist. They were down 19-3 to at the break, and by six minutes into the second half, that number had become 31 to 3. Ouch. I mean, a, a red card certainly impacted their performance, but even though Claremont helped them out with a pair of yellows late, it was just never in doubt. Another tough day for Scarlet's fans as their team went down pretty thoroughly, 38 to 17. Uh, Zebra versus Dragons. That was a game that technically took place this weekend, and I'm not even embarrassed to say I fast forwarded <laughs> through all the way through this one until there was 10 minutes left. But wow, the fog. It was it was a beautiful sight. I almost wish I had watched more. Um, I was bummed, though, to see Dragons looking like losing another close one. And sure enough, more bad news for fans of Welsh rugby. But a big day for the faithful in Parma. 20-17 to 17 was the final score in that one. Cast, they were home for a feisty Black Lion team. Again, didn't have a chance to watch this one properly. If you were to ask if it had anything to do with the new Bluey episodes dropping this weekend, well... I would have nothing to say. Thank you very much. In any event, the home team came through in a big way. The Georgians unable to get any real footing. It was 28-6 by the end. Edinburgh were hosting Gloucester at a frigid hive. For your game of the week in the Challenge Cup, the place looked full to the brim. You know who was having a great game right from the start? The Mish. I feel like I haven't even said Hamish Watson's name in a couple of years. Do we think he's finally recovered from that weird Lions tour? So players were dropping like flies early on. It was worrying for both teams. At, at one point, they had so many medics talking to so many players on the field that the stadium's PA team had to run through, we will rock you twice in a row. That was a new one. Either way, after a scoreless first quarter, it was a yellow card for Seth Atkinson that opened the door for Edinburgh's first try of the night. Even then, it looked like Glenn Young hurt his ankle rumbling over the line. It was a dangerous night to be out there. It was a close one. It was a mere 5-3 after the break. And with just 10 minutes to go, Edinburgh, they had a six-point advantage. However, Zach Mercer. Zach Mercer, man, he was having a masterful game. The guy is a force. He got through to give his team the slimmest possible lead with the clock winding down. Sure enough, 
heartbreaker at home for Edinburgh Gloucester, coming away with their third consecutive win in the Challenge Cup, 20-21. What a schizo team. Really tough way to close out a freezing night in the Scottish capital. Those fans must be crushed. Uh, Montpellier, they were home for the Lions. I'm afraid I entirely missed this one. But in the end, I'm kind of glad I did. The result looked like an uninspiring 13-3 for the home team. And then on Sunday, to close things out, Cheetahs were, quote, home, unquote, for Poe. I really thought they got all their games at actual home this year. But anyway, um, I was excited to see Cheetahs back in action. Apparently, the game was played at the National Rugby Center Amsterdam. Not sure why. Also, Holly Davidson was in charge of this one, who must have been thinking, what the actual heck? Like, what do I have to do? So the immortal Ruan Pinar, he, he got his side to a 12 to 17 halftime, but Poe sensed their opportunity and weren't about to miss it, getting a bizarre 20 to 33 win in the Netherlands. Meanwhile, in the PWR, we were back to a full slate on Saturday. First up, Leicester Tigers women were still searching for that elusive First win, this time against Bristol Bears women, but alas, it was not to be. Leicester got one try each half, but their guests poured in eight, just smashing the home team by a massive 38 points. Bristol's tries were shared between seven different players, the eighth being a penalty try around the 65th minute. By the end, it was a big 12-50 to 50 victory for the visitors. Elizabeth Martin and Talia Brody were the scores for Leicester, but for me, they still look a long way away from winning at all this season. After that, Harlequins women, they faced Loughborough Lightning. This turned out to be a classic. Harlequins were ahead thanks to their only score since the first quarter of play, getting a try in the 73rd minute, breaking the hearts of the Lightning, you'd think. But there was more to come. Catherine Treader got over the line at the 77th minute to put her team up by a single point. And Helena Rowland, she converted the extras to give them a remarkable 26-29 comeback win on the road. Just Great stuff from Loughborough. I don't know why I like that team so much. Saracens women, they were home for Exeter Chiefs women. And while Saracens didn't manage their usual 50 points, they still managed a big win at home, beating, uh, beating Exeter 39-26. to It was your usual suspects scoring for the winners, including Sophie DeGoody, Paige Ferries, and Marley Packer. And you know your team is crazy good when you're surprised that they only got seven tries in a match. Finally, it was your vote for the game of the week in the PWR where the Trailfinders were back in Ealing to face off against Gloucester Hartbury. Trailfinders, they scored first, and after a half hour, it was anyone's game. Elizabeth Craig already getting a brace by that point. The champs, I mean, they, they know this script very well, and they just methodically went about their business, building a 13-point lead with only a few minutes to go. Julia Schell scored for the home team right at the death to make the score more respectable, but the visitors were too much for them and remain unbeaten this year. 27 to 33 was the final score. It shows perfectly also, by the way, how important your kicking is. Like both teams managed five tries, but the three extra conversions for the champs, that accounted for the difference in yet another impressive win. They are so good and what a great comp. Well, by the music, you'll know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. And this week, the award goes to Matthew Jalibert. Monsieur Jalibert, you marshaled your team to a thoroughly convincing victory over three-time European champion Saracens. And best of all, you made it look so easy. You popped in for a try your team didn't even really need at that point and converted three others. But 
it was your leadership and cool head that led the way in a huge win. Matthew Jalibert, congratulations, for you are this week's Diamond in the Rock. Well done, sir. Okay, that brings us to our updates and previews, and next weekend's schedule will be very similar to this weekend's as we're continuing with the European competitions as well as the PWR. So that means for the Allianz Premiership Women's Rugby, it's Exeter's turn to have a bye week. And then we've got three Saturday fixtures and just one on Sunday. The early game on Saturday, I mean, it's early by an hour, but still. Um, We've got Bristol Bears women hosting Harlequins women, uh, followed by an absolute clash of titans. Gloucester Hartbury, our reigning champs, hosting the We Drop 50 Points a Week Saracens women. That could easily be a preview of the final. And then it's Loughborough Lightning taking on Ealing Trailfinders. That one sounds really good. I don't know why I love these teams so much. Anyway, on Sunday, Leicester Tigers women have the whole day to themselves to try, uh, try to finally get that inaugural win of the season, this time away at sale. Could be their best chance yet. So in the Crazy Horse Malt Liquor Cup on Friday, we've got Scarlets versus Edinburgh and Gloucester versus Cast. On Saturday, it's Black Lion at home for Claremont, Poe versus Zebre, Oyana versus the Cheetahs, Benetton versus Montpellier at the Stadio Meningo. On Sunday, our final three fixtures for round four are Perpignan versus Newcastle, oof, yikes, Lions versus Ospreys, and Dragons versus Sharks. Finally, wrapping up the European action until... April. Oh, I hate that. It's the Heineken Cup round four, which means on Friday we'll have Glasgow versus Toulon. Oof, nice. And Connacht versus Bristol. While on Saturday, it's Harlequins versus Ulster. I mean, all of these are so good. Bulls versus Bordeaux Begla. Wow. Bordeaux Begla going to the Bulls. Ooh. Uh, the Battle of the LEIs. It's Leinster versus Leicester. Rassing versus Cardiff. Munster versus Northampton. Stade Francais versus the Stormers, Saracens versus Lyon, and then on Sunday, it's a threefer to close out the weekend and round four. It's Sale versus La Rochelle, Toulouse v. Bath, and Bayon versus Exeter. How good. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. I could really use a nap. As I record this, we're 10 days out from the Sevens returning to Perth and 17 days away from France, hosting Ireland at the Orange Velodrome to kick off this year's Six Nations. I can only assume that the MLR will have gained and lost another, I don't know, two or three teams by then. So to all of you, as always, across the globe, cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well. It gives me great pleasure to be here today. Oh, that was neat. <laughs>